Thank you for listening to the Lunch Pail Guys podcast. If you enjoy the show and want to support us, the best ways are to leave a five-star review and subscribe on your favorite platform and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at lunchpailguys underscore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of the week. Today, we've got some NBA talk for you and some generic sports trauma talk for you. (laughs) Let's just dive right in. Um, Specifically, with the NBA talk, we are doing draft class power rankings. Last week, our devoted listeners will know we ranked uh, NFL quarterback classes, and we had a lot of fun with that. So we're going to run it back again this, this time, but with NBA draft classes. Once again, we're doing 2010 through 2021 let's just dive right in aiden kick us off with the first pick so i'm gonna go with i think a a fairly standard pick it's a a long time ago at this point but the 2011 nba draft class i think there are just too many studs too many championship winners in this to be topped you've got Kawhi, who obviously won a title with the raptors uh you've got clay who has three titles to his name you've got Kyrie at number one who also has a title and a bunch of other really good guys like Jimmy Butler, who it really is really trying for his title. Uh, you've got some guys beyond that. You've got some depth. You've got Kemba at nine, who, yes, has faded in recent years, but was pretty solid for a couple of years. Isaiah Thomas, the last guy picked for the Kings. Mm-hmm. Again, another guy who, of you know, recently has not been relevant, but was a fairly good one of the one of the reasons to watch the Kings, if there are, you know, there aren't that many of those, but mm-hmm. Isaiah Thomas was a good reason to watch the Kings back in the day, and then you've got a fair amount of like useful, you know, guys on a roster like Tobias Harris or uh, Nikola Nikolovic or um, or <laughs> Nikola Vucevic, excuse me. You've got Bogdanovich. You've got Chandler Parsons, who is good for a hot sack. You've got Enos Cantor. Who is taken at three, which is maybe a little too high. Um, but in general, there are a fair amount of hits here. And the misses are not as bad as some of the other draft classes. Jimmer is a famous miss. Rip at number 10. Uh, but that's not even that high anyway. Uh, so I, I think the the fact that they have so many guys who were key pieces on title teams makes this class number one for me. Was that your number one, Bart? Bart yeah. thought it was very clear cut. I mean, they have they have four probable Hall of Famers, which I think is like a, a pretty mm-hmm. compelling case. No other class can say that. <clears throat> we'll see. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm up next. I'm number two, and there are honestly four that I'm split Whoa. between right now. Whoa. I think 2012, 2018, 2014, and 2017 <laughs> all have a relatively compelling case to be second. I think. I'm going to go 2012, though, just because I think top-line talent and depth. I think it's depth is actually what I think is the best part about the 2012 draft. So, I mean, top-line, you have AD, won a title, one of the best players in the league for a year. I know we clown on him a lot, but, I mean, despite the injuries and him maybe being a little overrated and not being one of the 75 best players in NBA history or whatever, was, like, an elite player for, like, at least a good five or six years and has won a title. Good pick. Chris Middleton... Second best player on a championship team. 
has and was like a second round pick and so has really just overperformed too so great value picking chris middleton but then you have the other stars there dame lillard has consistently been one of the best scorers since he came into the league bradley beal although never really seeing the team success with the wizards again an elite scorer throughout his entire time there um and then you have guys like uh draymond green who has been one of the most crucial parts, I think, on the Warriors Dynasty team, even if not the most flashy player. Just kind of scrappy, gets it all done. And then you even get down there further into the depth of guys like Andre Drummond, who was a really good center and rebounder for a lot of years and has sort of found a second life being an off-the-bench center. He played that role really well for the Sixers at parts uh, this year before they traded into the Nets. You guys like Harrison Barnes and Jay Crowder, who are, again, just like solid, good role players that, you know, fill out uh squads well so i think with all that 2012 was the best there are a few really bad misses in this draft too which i think keeps it from being top michael kidd gilchrist at two huge miss thomas robinson at five huge miss but i think overall like the consistency and the depth of the talent in this draft is what gives it the edge over those other ones i mentioned yep i agree i um 2012 was my number one class actually but i understand interesting um I, Lucas, I agree. It is difficult. I'm between two classes. I'm actually going to pick one. might be a little controversial because it's so recent. I'm going with 2018. Luka Doncic, Trey Young, DeAndre Ayton are kind of the highlights there. And this one's get definitely more on like projecting than what previous classes behind them uh, that I considered have done. But I think that like Luka especially is going to be a generational talent if not if he isn't already. Trey Young has definitely has the potential to do that. He's made a deep playoff run. It was a pandemic season, sort of, or it was like kind of the tail end of the pandemic season. So maybe it was a little fluky, but we'll see. And then we just talked about DeAndre Aiden earlier this week, who's a pretty solid player, and we maybe have not seen his full potential yet because he's been on the Suns. Underneath that, we got Michael Porter Jr., Jaron Jackson Jr., um, and... After that, my basketball knowledge is not good enough to say if there's a definitive miss in this uh, class yet. We are in, only in the 2018 class, so it's not. It's still decently recent. So I'll put 2018 there, third. I will throw out Marvin Bagley, a pick above Luca, as being a pretty big miss among them. And there was that classic like, video clip of like the guy celebrating, being like, "Yes, I didn't want Luca in the Kings jersey," which <laughs> aged like milk. Mm-hmm. But, Good thing yeah. you didn't go no, to the Kings. I, another, your yeah. career would languish there. Another miss I'll put in is Kevin Knox at nine for the mm-hmm. Knicks. That's not as high <laughs> up, but the Knicks just they continually miss. And Kevin Knox is like last year averaged like three points a game or whatever. He never really panned out. But a summer league star, I remember that summer. <laughs> he was gonna be like the next big thing. <laughs> exactly. This is our cautionary tale for the summer. Rank league. the summer league stars next. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I had 2018 at three though as well, Jared. So right, cool. I support that. I, I actually I had them a bit lower, but I understand it. So yeah, yeah, for me for me the whole projection versus shown like demonstrated stats is is a hard line to toe, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. typically err on the side of demonstrated stats. I also want to say before I like you guys have been talking a lot about misses, but to me I didn't really factor misses in at all because like to me I feel like every single class has a lot of misses, and so it's really just more about the the guys who did end up being good. 
Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't care if your first overall pick was a bust, personally, but I understand. Anyways, mm-hmm. with all that being said, I'm going to go, I think, with 2014 here. Of course you mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know why you went with 2014. <laughs> well, I mean, Jared, of course you went with Luca too. Let's not pretend yeah, like we didn't. I knew that sure. when I picked them, if I picked them, somebody was going to say that. So thank you, Jared. So <laughs> to our listeners who aren't aware and don't have all of the NBA drafts in their head, off the top of their head, this is the draft that had Nikola Jokic in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's why Jared is saying that. Um, I think Jokic and Embiid carry this for me. I think, like I said, I I care a lot about like top level talent and those two, like most drafts don't have two guys that dominant come out of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like obviously Jokic has his two MVPs, um, but like Embiid could easily get two of his own before he's done. Um, They have a defensive player of the year now in Marcus Smart. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's like some solid depth as well past that. Like Zach Levine is like a really solid, like, above average player i mean he's not like a superstar per se but he's solid julius randall had an electric one season we'll see if that ever comes back <laughs> um and then you I, I don't know you have like some solid role players here right? like you've got clint capella wiggins who was like trash for most of his career i know that very well but he just played really well for the warriors and got a lot of acclaim uh nurkic has been pretty good since he moved to the blazers so I, but mostly for me this one is buoyed by the fact that they have a two-time mvper and Embiid, who also could easily have won the MVP this year. So they're both just two super dominant big men. I think that's more valuable than having depth, per se. So I go with 2014 here at pick number four. All right, so back to you, Aiden. That's where I had him, too, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I had him there you tried well. to clown me for Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree with that pick. Um, at this point, I feel like it gets a little bit dicey. I have here the 2013 NBA class and again this is kind of superstar driven or driven by one man in particular Giannis mm. who was the 15th pick was very much like uh we're going on potential and it yeah this is the uh the the case for the potential pick because he really did work out obviously he's an NBA champion and NBA MVP uh so he's obviously the star of that class there is, there are other guys in this class who worked out, like Oladipo at two. He's been injured a bunch lately, but he, when he's healthy, is very good. Gobert, who the Wolves just traded the world for. Uh, CJ, who for years was a you know consistent threat for the Blazers. Um, though obviously there are some serious misses here, including a, one of the most notorious of all time, and Anthony Bennett, who was one of those guys who really rose up the the chart at the you know in the last couple months and did not work out at all you've even got like cody zeller alex len also in the top five who did not work out Otto porter jr is was okay for the wizards for years you know he's a champion now right he was on the on the warriors but another guy in the top five who did not work out but i, I do think this class is still valuable for the fact that they have Giannis and a couple other guys who are have been all-stars and potentially will be all-stars again yeah all right uh i'm gonna go 2017 at six i think there's a lot of talent in this one um i think like the superstar of the class too i think very clearly jason tatum um who you know despite his like sometimes inefficiency is an elite scorer led the celtics to the finals this year and i think has been just like an absolute hit of a pick for the celtics Outside of that, you had a couple really good players go outside of the top 10 as well. So, like, really good value picks. Donovan Mitchell went at 13, and Bam Adebayo went at 14. Donovan Mitchell, since he's basically come into the league, has led the Jazz to a fair deal of consistency and playoff competition. 
Um, and despite the fact that all of that is falling apart now, um, I think it's still been like overall a net positive for the Jazz. And with Bam, you know, he's turned into one of, one of like I'd say the top five or six centers in the league at this point, and has anchored some really good Heat teams as well. Um, you have Lonzo Ball too, who's turned into a really nice player for the Bulls. Um, and so, like, while I don't think like this draft, outside of maybe Tatum, has any superstars. They're just like a lot of other consistent players. Like De'Aaron Fox is in there. Jared Allen's in there. Um, just guys who like have like slotted in nicely into their roles on teams and made a difference. And so that saves it for me above some of the other classes below, which may have like slightly better top line talent, but just like really dramatically uh, fall off after that. This is notorious though. This is Markel Fultz being the number one overall pick. So another one of the bigger busts in history. But I think overall as a draft class, 2017 is pretty good. All right, so I got the seventh pick here. I had this class a pick above. I'm going with 2015. Uh, headlined by Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns, Porzingis, D'Angelo Russell. Um, I think just a lot of solid players there and pretty good top-line talent. I mean, Devin Booker is the one with the Suns and was an MVP candidate this year. Carl Anthony Towns, when he wants to be, is pretty dominant and... Porzingis, like, I guess he did headline this class, but he's definitely has never reached the status they wanted him to after like the first two seasons. And D'Angelo Russell is uh, D'Angelo Russell is also a pretty solid player. And I'm not gonna put a class with Ben Simmons any higher than it needs to be. So <laughs> there you go. Seventh is gonna be a 2015 class yeah. right there. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll put Ben Simmons class where it needs to be. I guess <laughs> I. I'm actually I'm surprised that 2016 has fallen, but I'm taking Me 2016 too. here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like the opposite of my first pick. This is like not a a draft buoyed by two players at all. But I love this class because it feels like it has a ton of like rock solid guys who came out of it. So like my my list of relevant names here: Ben Simmons, Pascal Siakam, mm-hmm. Jalen Brown, Brandon Ingram, Jamal Murray, Dejounte Murray. And Demontis Sabonis. Those are like all all-star, like borderline guys. That's like seven really, really talented guys. I feel like no draft, any draft that has that many like talented people come out of it is lucky. It might be mm-hmm. the deepest one in terms of like, you know, above average starters coming out of it, which I think is crazy. Is anybody going to be a Hall of Famer in this class? Probably not. Maybe Ben Simmons, if he gets his act together and gets past all the drama. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Jalen Brown, if, if he, you know, continues developing alongside Tatum. I don't know. But, uh, oh, and then Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald are also in this class, and I think they deserve a little bit of love. Brogdon just mm-hmm. got traded to the Celtics. Maybe he'll get, you know, even more notoriety now. But I like this class just because it's like there are so many relevant names here as opposed to classes that have, like, three good players and then the rest is meh. So mm-hmm. I go with 2016 here at eight. Yeah, that class is low-key very deep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I respect that pick. Next up, I'm going with the 2010 draft class, which at this point, it's so far away that a lot of the guys are kind of washed up, so I think I'm a little bit biased toward it, towards it as a result. Uh, but there are still a bunch of guys who, for years, were big guys in the NBA. You've got John Wall at number one, uh, who was a, was a star, I think, uh, for a fair amount of time. DeMarcus Cousins, who, when he wasn't injured was quite good before, you know, the last couple of years. Gordon Hayward, another guy, when he's not injured, was quite good. Paul George, who as much as we clown on him, mm. was again like a, a star, I think, at, at some point. 
Uh, as far as depth, this is not as deep as the the class that Bart just went through. You've got Hassan Whiteside, who is still going to some degree. Uh, but there were some misses, particularly two, three, and four, I'd say, were misses in the draft with Evan Turner, who is okay. Derek Favors never really worked out. And Wesley Johnson at four, or I think the Wolves also never really worked out. So there definitely were some some big kind of... Uh, um, iffy picks, but I think the the top line talent here is solid uh, compared to some of the draft classes that are still left on the board. Like Paul George, I don't think people remember that he was second in MVP voting yeah. in season. I think, which mm-hmm. is like back on the Pacers. Are we talking yeah. about? I yeah, yeah. No, he was like really before that, like broken leg, right? Yeah, the, yeah. During the Team USA summer camp, he mm-hmm. was really viewed as like a really top three top five guy anyway i feel like that missed potential kind of hurts the class though potentially that's fair there is a fair amount of missed potential here with john wall yeah there's there's a lot doing anything demarcus cousins didn't really gordon hayward paul george none of those guys have won titles or really been super close to titles or being an important guy on a title team all right the next one i'm gonna pick i think i'm picking a lot on upside at this point and what i think they've like demonstrated so far because i mean the last three are the last three draft classes so it's all basically i think picking on what we think is the highest upside at this point um and i'm gonna go Mm -hmm. with the 2020 class here i think this year especially has been a real breakout year for this class lamella wall i think has the potential to be top three point guard in the nba for at least five or six years at during his prime i think his distributions turned into be great. He's turned into a pretty good scorer. It's going to be tough on those Charlotte teams to really shine, but I think Lamelo has really high upside. And Edwards really came into his own this year. Um, led the Wolves into the playoffs. Really impressive. Um, and plus, uh, like the deeper sort of role player guys, I think have turned out pretty well as well for like the ones that are like the the top line. Tyrese Maxey for the Sixers turned into an excellent player this year. A guy who's a starter on a playoff com- competing team, a guy who's turned into a really good scorer and shooter, and I think whose game will only benefit from Harden being there. Uh, you have Desmond Bain on the Grizzlies, who, again, has turned into an excellent player this year, might be one of their two or three most important players on a team that was the two-seed in the West this year. And you have Tyrese Halliburton, who was really good when he started with the Kings, um, and I think is a really bright future on the Pacers as well. So I think just sort of across the board, there's a lot of guys here with a lot of upside, that are just sort of only projecting upwards in a way that I don't think the other two classes left necessarily have. So I'm going to go 2020 uh, for the 10th best. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I did, though, have the class I'm going to pick here ahead of the 2020 class, which is the 2019 class. I'm picking him 11th here. And again, this is going off of potential as well, rather than... I, even, I had him above the 2010 class, actually, because... They have not wasted their potential yet. Uh, John Morant, obviously, is a superstar already. One of the best players in the league. Zion potentially could. I'm a still a big fan of Zion, but he needs to like actually be on the court and start playing some games. Um, and this also has NBA star, not star, Jordan Poole in this class as well. So I think there's some pretty decent talent. Um, obviously, like very good top-of-the-line talent with John Morant. Potentially Zion could join that conversation too, and then I don't know. I, I I like Jordan Poole a lot, so we'll see we'll see what he can do too. Um, Tyler Hero also in this class too, but um, I just don't 
know anybody in the 2021 class, if I'm being honest. So I had to put them last. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had the 2021 class last as well. They just... Like, sometimes you have classes where even as rookies, they're, like, kind of electric, you know, and and you can be optimistic. But, like, this class really didn't excite me. I mean, no offense to Toronto Raptors fans, but Scotty Barnes won Rookie of the Year. I mean, that's not an electric (laughs) season at all. Like, he was just really solid, like, in his his role. Uh, I know we debated about him at one point. Like, he wasn't even – he wasn't even asked to do that much, but I digress. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. Cade – Cade – like, it's still exciting. Cade could still become one of the best scorers in the league – guards in general i guess Jalen green more so might just be a, a scorer exclusively but like yeah i don't know it, this one this one's just kind of hard to project evan mobley was good this year as well but this also doesn't seem like a class that it's gonna have like more than like one or two hall of famers and it. it might be more like the other classes that are just if you know all-star ceiling so yeah i don't really have too much else to say about 2021 i agree they were also my last class so i'm happy to pick them here it was tougher than the the quarterback draft class, though. That's for sure. Yeah, I think you'd see much more diversity of opinion if you looked at our notes as to where everything should be. Yeah, just cool. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, is that a football thing or a quarterback thing? I wonder if we did. It's probably quarterback. a quarterback thing. If if we did NFL draft classes in general, it'd also probably be pretty varied. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, think it could I feel be. like QBs is or whenever you have a narrow thing to hone in on on rank, it's going to be easier. Yeah. Whereas here, we're you know ranking a bunch of there's there's too many variables i wonder too if like if we went back in like five years and redid this mm-hmm. how dramatically it yep. would change because yep. our top mm. five were 2011 2012 2018 2014 and 2013 so four of the five oldest drafts were four of the five top picks so i wonder if just with time things change or i don't know yeah that's true they've had more time for accolades yeah yeah okay well Let's move on to our second segment, um, sports trauma. Specifically, we're talking about the most heartbreaking moments in sports history. I don't really think this needs much else explanation. Um, Lucas, I'm sure, I'm sure you had a lot to consider for this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can start us off. What do you think was the most heartbreaking moment? All right, let me set the scene. It's August 4th, 1989, and the Toronto Blue Jays are playing their division rival, the New York Yankees. And there are two strikes and two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning. And Dave Steve has not allowed a runner on base during the course of the entire game. Um, You can imagine, because we're in the genre of most heartbreaking sports moments, what happens next. Um, that he does allow a hit and loses the perfect game, which, again, losing a perfect game is sad, but it's happened before. But it's filled in with context about why it is the saddest moment in sports history. I feel like that was a weird way to phrase that, but I'm just going to roll with it. Um, Dave Steve had lost not one, but two no-hitters in the bottom of the ninth in the past season before it. So not only is there the sadness of losing this, but he had also had the exact same thing happen to him twice in the previous two seasons. Add into the context even more than that, losing a perfect game, I think, that close is one of the most heartbreaking things in any sport because there have only been 23 in history. So the fact that you have the chance to do something that only 23 other people have done before and has never been done by a combined group of people, um, <laughs> I think, which gives it you know some extra credit, makes it just heartbreaking 
to lose. And so I think you combine all these factors together and it just adds up to one of the most heartbreaking moments in all of sports history to not only lose two no hitters within a couple seasons, but then to lose your perfect game with two outs and two strikes in the bottom of the ninth inning and be denied a place in history. It's tough. I mean, I, I also considered losing perfect games. Um, who's the guy for the White Sox back in like 2010 where it was the Ooh, missed call? Tigers. No, it was the Tigers, or the right? Tigers, the Tigers, the Tigers, or, um, yeah, or, Armando yeah, Galarraga, yeah. I think. Yeah, where the missed call cost him the perfect game. I considered that. But I think the context of this is even worse. To like have it happen to you basically three times within a year is just heartbreaking. Um, and so, yeah. Shout out to... There, there's a, a SB Nation secret-based documentary all about Dave Steep's career, which introduced me to his story. So you should all watch that, too, if you have the time. I'll plug that. All right. That is brutal. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I was going to say Armando Galarraga, so thanks for stealing my thunder. No, I'm just joking. I, I did have it written down, but... Uh, I actually think I'm going to call an audible here, and I'm going to go with one. Mm. Maybe this is recency bias, but if anybody followed Formula One, you know about this. Is Lewis Hamilton essentially losing the F1 championship on the very last lap because of a, a another missed call, essentially, by the mm. referees? To set the stage here, um, Lewis was Lewis was comfortably they were so Lewis. The way the Formula One championship works is you score points throughout the season. Whoever has the most points at the end of the season wins. In the very last race, Lewis Hamilton and his main challenger, Max Verstappen, were exactly equal on points. So basically whoever finished ahead would win the championship. Lewis was in first place and comfortably leading when another car crashed, causing a safety car, which bunches up the pack. And what should have happened is sometimes when the car, like the pack gets bunched up, there's like lapped cars in between first and second place. What should happen is all the cars are able, all the lapped cars are able to pass the safety car. They completely made up their own rules on the spot, the the referees did, and only let the lapped cars in between first and second pass, and that left enough time to have one more racing lap, essentially. So Lewis lost, essentially lost the title on the last lap. It still was like a deserved, in terms of the whole season, it was definitely deserved for Max, but... I woke up at like 4 a.m. to watch this race live. And I, of all the things I thought could happen in that race, that literally was like not even a possibility I'd ever considered. I remember like being like, like genuinely like bewildered at like, what did I just witness in terms of like rules just going out the window? And you could, the team principal, they let you into the radio and stuff. And the team principal for Mercedes was like, begging like i'm not even joking that's begging, not right michael yeah that's not right begging the race director <laughs> to change the rule to like like ma- correct his mistake and they were yelling like they were putting this audio on like while lewis was getting passed by max it was one of the most it's pretty heartbreaking i didn't feel good about that the way that season ended for sure um so i gotta put that there up there that was pretty like it was genuinely like bewildering I, I did not expect to see that when i tuned in at 4 a.m yeah because it's like the two options were either that they didn't like either nobody unlapped and then there were five cars between lewis and max there's no way max would have passed five cars in one lap yeah or they would have let everybody unlap but that would have taken so long that the race just finished yeah because like not everybody could have unlapped in time so they would have just crossed mm-hmm. the finish line without restarting the race 
And so, yeah, they're just like, well, it's a motor race. Let's have them race against each other. But I think I described it before as, like, a team is on, like, their own 20-yard line, and they're down seven with, like, five seconds left. And then the refs are like, you know what? We're just going to put the ball in the five. You know, like, (laughs) (laughs) on, like, like, the opponent's five-yard line. Like, that's essentially, I feel like, what happened there. And I remember I was watching with some of my friends from high school, and one of my friends is a big Lewis fan. And the second the safety car was called, he walked out of the house and just did not come back for like 30 minutes because <laughs> knowing the inevitable of what would happen. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Aiden, what about you? Give us some trauma. Uh, so I'm going to go with a, a classic. This is not a particularly subtle one, but I'm going to go with the Steve Bartman Cubs oh, incident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's something particularly heartbreaking about a fan screwing over everything for a team. You know, especially mm-hmm. when that team is in the midst of a 95-year championship drought, which I don't uh-huh. think Lewis Hamilton was. I don't, I don't, think, he, <laughs> I don't yeah. think he was either. I don't think that was 95 years. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but, but for a quick recap to set the scene, it's October in 2003 in Chicago. We're at Wrigley, and the Cubs are up 3 nothing in the eighth inning of Game 6 of the NLCS. The Cubs are up in the series. They're five outs away from the World Series. And five outs away from their first National League pennant in over 50 years. Um, and Luis Castillo of the Marlins. This was back when the Marlins were actually kind of passable. Uh, they had a couple mm-hmm. really good years in the early 2000s, including a World Series. But anyway, Luis Castillo hits a fly ball down the left field line. Moises Alou leaps to catch it. But Steve Bartman, a lifelong Cubs fan, reaches out and catches the ball instead accidentally he said he wasn't really paying attention to the you know who's on the field and whatnot he was just trying to catch the ball which i think is fairly relatable as a fan Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway inevitably the cubs fell apart after that mark Pryor, the pitcher at the time walked castillo the marlins then singled uh the cubs shortstop then mishandled a ball that could have been a double play and eventually the floodgates just really opened and the marlins scored eight runs that inning uh, causing the cubs to lose the game the Cubs then inevitably lost Game 7 and were eliminated. Uh, so that one is just, I feel like, particularly, will always be just particularly brutal. Um, and obviously the Cubs did eventually break the curse in 2016 mm-hmm. after 108 years. Um, but and I should have known this previously as a baseball fan, uh, but I don't think I was totally up to date on the curse of the Billy Goat, which is what the specific curse was, mm-hmm. <laughs> where yeah. um, apparently... The, the curse that was on the Cubs that caused them to not win a World Series or a National League pennant for years and years and years uh, was given by William Cianus, the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern, a chain of mm-hmm. taverns in Chicago, which I'm sure we, we've all frequented. Um, <laughs> yes, but, many a time. Yeah. <laughs> Cianus had a pet goat, as you do. Um, the goat's name was Murphy, and he mm-hmm. took him to Game 4 of the 1945 World Series at Wrigley. Uh, and he was asked to leave because apparently Murphy, the goat, was bothering other fans. <laughs> as, as a goat might. Uh, but anyway, what's, uh, William Cianus did not like this. And he declared, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. <laughs> and then they did it. And then they did For 71 years. Exactly. Which is absolutely hilarious. Um, and like Cianus' family... Um, Claims that he specifically dispatched a telegram. Again, this is, yeah, this is really making clear that we're in 1945. <laughs> um, dispatched a telegram to the owner of the Cubs after this incident, 
which read, you are going to lose this World Series and you are never going to win another World Series again. Mm. You are never going to win a World Series again because you insulted my goat. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just iconic. Uh, But anyway, he was wrong. Sianus was wrong. They did did win a World Series eventually. Um, But... It, it was, a, at the time, this Steve Bartman's, and it really was just, I feel like it would, it would have been brutal to be a Cubs fan at that moment. Yeah. Any Anything that, like, gets you death threats as a fan, I think yeah. is, like, that's that's terrifying. That's that's Honestly, hard to imagine. Yeah, that's awful. He, um, he's a Notre Dame alum, too. Oh. For those that didn't know. I mean, isn't uh, the gall to try to catch that. Oh, <laughs> isn't he still oh, in, like... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Isn't he like kind of in hiding still? He is. They gave him. They gave him a World Series ring though in 2016. Oh, kind of weird. This is nice. <laughs> <laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> I think it's nice. I'm more yeah, surprised he's still, he's still in hiding. <laughs> yeah, he is at this point. Yeah, I, think I heard that he they're was, probably. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I just heard that he was offered like six figures for a Super Bowl commercial at some point and turned it down. So he seems pretty committed to being in hiding. Well, good for him. Wish that was me. Am I right? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Anyways, I'm last, and I'm frankly shocked. I guess I, I tread more on the beaten path like Aiden here, but literally none of the ones I wrote down have been taken. Um, so I guess I, I – anyways. So my default answer for this, which I don't really want to talk about today, is the Vikes in the 98 championship game. I've talked about it on a podcast before. They were 15-1. and one. A kicker who hadn't missed a single field goal all season missed the, the game-winning field goal or the field goal that would have guaranteed them the win, and then they lost in overtime. Vikes still don't have a Super Bowl to this day. But that's not what I'm going to go with. I'm actually surprised. I think the actual probably best answer, and it's still the NFL, is the Falcons in the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm shocked mm-hmm. nobody has said this. Yeah. This is actually, I think, like okay. I had the same mm-hmm. feeling that you had, Jared, like you were saying after that, the Lewis Hamilton race, where like after it ended – I just sat there and I was like, what did we just witness happen? Because uh, the Falcons were up by 25 points with 18 minutes left. I, I, I double checked this. It's the biggest Super Bowl comeback of all time. It's the third biggest playoff comeback of all time. And by as far as I could tell, it's the fifth biggest comeback in any general NFL game of all time. Wow. And so for, for them, they literally ran the ball more in the first half than they did in the second half when they were up by 25 points it's outrageous it's a catastrophe and so like i considered the brazil 7-1 game as well mm. but like oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bra- brazil's always good this is crazy because the falcons had only been to one super bowl before and they also lost that one and so to like to think that you have the goat quarterback of all time down and out for the count and then to watch the lead slowly just trickle away go to overtime and then you blow the literally the biggest super bowl lead of all time I think that has to, for Falcons fans, like, I don't know how you live with that, you know? Like, that's an exaggeration, but they're going to carry that with them <laughs> for the rest of their lives. I think that's that's definitely my, I think my, like, actual, what I would say is the correct answer on this one. The but, correct answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can I give another Never... Super Bowl one? Yes. Yeah. I've talked about this on the podcast, I believe, as well. But Russell Wilson throwing the interception to Malcolm Butler um, to seal uh, their fate yeah, yeah, in yeah. the Super Bowl really against bad. the Patriots again. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I, that was another game where I wasn't even that big of a Seahawks fan at the time, but I do vividly remember watching that happen and like slumping out of my chair when he threw that pick. <laughs> and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. We should have just handed that off to Marshawn Lynch first off. Mm-hmm. And then Richard Sherman as well. Like just looking like absolutely horrified once that happened too. <laughs> like I was image. like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was the one that I initially wrote down. Actually, that was the first one that came to mind. 
But. Mm-hmm. The the thought of like what what could have been with the Legion of Boom and Russell Wilson if they had won that and gone on to mm-hmm. you know probably become a dynasty. It's mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we we all watched together the the Falcons Patriots Super Bowl too. Yeah, we were like eating pizza. And stuff. Of that. We were eating pizza in the basement of Morrissey. Very strong memories of that. Rip Matty Ice. Uh, I know. It's tough. <laughs> Natty Ice. Rip Natty Ice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, please, per usual, if you haven't already, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Um, follow us on TikTok and Instagram, Lunchpail Guys. Um, and yeah, we'll be back next week, I'm sure, with plenty of fun stuff to talk about, though not baseball because Wyatt will be back. Uh, But anyway, see ya.